Well, hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week, we're doing an archive show. This one was first broadcast back on the 17th of July in 2017. Hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. Chester. I'm ready whenever you are, Mr. Dillon. All right, let's go. It is hot today. How hot is it? Well, I'll tell you. I went to the store to buy a loaf of bread, and all the bread was already toast. Oh, that is hot. I heard on the news that dairy farmers are reporting their cows are giving pasteurized milk. How hot is it? I was at the park, and I saw birds using potholders to try to pull the worms up out of the ground. That's an old joke. My car overheated before I even started it. You think it's hot outside, huh? Well, you, you you talk about hot. My neighbor said his little kid had condensation on his tushy from the hot water in the toilet bowl. Oh, <laughs> I've never heard that one. That one's pretty good. My dog started chasing a cat. They were both walking. Oh, I've heard that one, too. I'll tell you how hot it is. I saw a funeral procession going down the highway, and they pulled into a Dairy Queen. Ooh, that is hot. Yeah, well, that's hot <laughs> Well, hi, this is Bob Rowe. Even though it's hot, we're, we're cooling down now. This, this is Boomer Boulevard. This is the old-time radio show where we actually play old-time radio that we remember from when we were kids. Why? Because we're baby boomers. Many of these shows were on in the late 50s, the early 60s, and many of them later came on television, and that's where we remember them from. But nonetheless, we remember them. We've got a great lineup tonight. We're glad to have you along. We have an episode of Richard Diamond, Private Detective. And then the second show that we're going to play on the Comedy Corner is going to kind of remain a mystery for a little bit. We'll talk about it when it comes up. And then finally, we're going to be on the streets of Dodge City, Kansas, with an episode of Gunsmoke that uh, involves somewhat of a a Shakespearean tragedy. It's a good one. It's really a good one. Even if you are hot, maybe you can come inside, get something cold to drink, cool down, have a seat, make yourselves at home, because we're going to get started in just a moment.
right. To start things off, we're going to play an episode of Richard Diamond, Private Detective. I played an episode of Richard Diamond a couple shows back and received a lot of nice emails from folks that wanted to hear more uh, Richard Diamond. In fact, here's one here that I kind of liked in particular. Dear Bob, thanks for playing Richard Diamond. I am a huge Dick Powell fan. I don't think there was anything he couldn't do. He was a great dancer, a great singer, and a great actor. Richard Diamond is my favorite old-time radio show. I love the fact that it has lots of wisecracking. The actors who breathed life into the imaginative characters were wonderful. The writing was innovative. It was quick-witted and entertaining. My personal favorite episodes were The Gray Man and The Blue Serge Suit, but there were many others, in fact, too many to mention. I hope you play more Richard Diamond in your future shows. And that was from Miles in Decatur, Georgia. Well, thank you very much, Miles. I appreciate that. And we are going to follow your advice and listen to an episode of Richard Diamond, Private Detective, that was uh, broadcast back on the 16th of February in 1951 on ABC. And the name of this episode is The Gray Man. Not the man in the gray suit or the gray flannel suit, but The Gray Man. And you'll see why. In just a minute. It's a good episode, and it was written by Blake Edwards. Of course, he didn't create Richard Diamond. We talked about the history of Richard Diamond uh, the last time we played one of these shows, but Blake Edwards did create a number of memorable characters, and I thought we might use one of those characters' theme song to introduce our episode of Richard Diamond tonight. Yeah, Blake Edwards wrote a lot of cool stuff. Of course, later he went on to become a producer-director and really made made quite a name for himself in the movie industry. But in the early days of radio, or not the early days, in the later days of old-time radio, he was quite prolific as a writer there, as you will see in this episode tonight of Richard Diamond, Private Detective. Blake Edwards might have been known by some of our generation as Mr. Julie Andrews because they were married for a number of years. In fact, he even directed her in a uh, motion picture. But uh, he was probably best known for the Pink Panther. And when I listen to this music, I am just instantly transported back to the Pantages Theater in Hollywood. It's like 19, what, 65 or so, and watching Peter Sellers and laughing out loud at some of his antics. Well, let's uh, let's listen as Blake Edwards takes some of that uh, comedic talent and transposes it to Richard Diamond, private detective, in this episode, once again, from 1951, entitled The Gray Man. Thank you. 
makers of Camel Cigarettes present Dick Powell as Richard Diamond, Private Detective. Transcribed is Richard Diamond, Private Detective, starring Dick Powell. It was a cold afternoon in New York. There were six inches of snow in the streets and twice that much on the fire escape outside my window. I looked down at Broadway and watched the miserable pedestrians edging their way over the slippery, ice-covered sidewalks and thought about burning some of my furniture. It was just the day for anything unpleasant, and when the door to my office opened, I turned around to look at one of the most unpleasant sights I'd ever been faced with. Standing in the door was something that looked human, and I used the term human only because I stuck around long enough to find out for sure. He was about six feet and well-dressed, in a dark gray overcoat. But his face raised goosebumps from my argyles to my haircut. It was as dark gray as his overcoat, his whole face, his eyes, his lips, and when he spoke, even his tongue. Mr. Diamond? Yeah? I want you to find a man, and I want you to find him in the next five hours. He didn't sit down. He just stood there facing me like a bad dream. I pushed the chair back and got up as though I had to be standing to protect myself from what was coming. The man I want you to find is named Carnes. He's a science teacher at State College. Is he missing? Would I want him located if he wasn't? Would I have asked you if I'd known the answer to that? How much is your fee, Mr. Diamond? When I know what I'm getting into, a hundred a day in expenses. Yes, five hundred. Find Lewis Carnes in five hours and you get another five hundred. Does it matter if you know what you're getting into? I never go waiting if there's quicksand around. Not even for a thousand dollars? I never like to count money when I'm suffocating. You only have to find Lewis Carnes. I guarantee you'll live through it. And after I find him? You can spend your thousand and forget about it. Why do you want him found? I owe him a debt. I want to pay him. And why do I have to find him in the next five hours? Because that's how long I've got to live. Interesting situation? You bet. And that thousand made it about as interesting a situation as I'd ever gotten into. I couldn't take my eyes off of him, standing there as gray as an early morning ghost. I wanted to ask him about his color. But in a business like mine, if a client comes in riding a purple llama, you greet him like everybody rides purple llamas and keep your mouth shut. He handed me the $500 and a card with his business address on it. Roger Vegas. 64 West 110th, studio of modern photography. He backed up two steps, 
smiled a slow, dead smile, turned and walked out of the office like he was going to look at his own grave. I sat back down and thought about it for a while, and the little voice in the back of my head kept whispering, Don't do it, Diamond. Don't do it, Diamond. Don't do it, Diamond. Oh, shut up. You'll be sorry. What about the thousand dollars? It'll buy you a nice funeral. Eh, peasant. If it ain't Richard Diamond, the overstuffed flatfoot. Well, if it ain't Sergeant Otis, the overstuffed flathead. Oh. Oh. Someday you'll be sorry. Well, everybody is sooner or later. Think of what your poor mother must have gone through. That ain't funny. I'll bet your father didn't think so either. Oh. Oh, Rick. Still picking on him? Oh, he'll be picked on until somebody plucks off that other head. What's up? Uh, Walter wants some information. If I can... History on a fellow named Roger Vegas. Here's his card. Also, a Mr. Lewis Kynes, science professor at State College. Well, I'll try. What's it all about? Roger Vegas wants me to find this Lewis Kynes. Wants to pay back a debt. What's unusual about that? I don't know. Oh, but you should see Roger Vegas. He'd scare you right into a dozen more ulcers. I doubt it. No room for any more. Well, the ones you've got would hide. You should see this guy, Walt. His face, his, his, his hands are dark gray. What about the rest of them? Now, wouldn't you know it if I got to ask him to take his clothes off? Very funny. What do you mean he's gray? Well, that's just what he is. Even his eyes. Not just the pupil, but the whole eye. The whole eye? Yeah. If he raised his collar, he could stick out his tongue, put a tie pen on it, and wear it with a dark blue suit. His tongue, too? Even his fingernails, his gums. I suppose his hair is plaid. Okay, okay. But if you ever run into this guy in a dark alley, get set to faint. Well, I'll see what I can find out about him. I've got to have the information pretty fast. I've only got four and a half hours to find Lewis Carnes. How come? Because Roger Vegas has only got that long to live. Rick. That's what he told me. A guy with a gray face comes into your office, wants you to find another guy, and tells you you've got to find him in the next four and a half hours because he's going to die. Who's going to die? The guy with the gray face. You didn't say that. You said got to find the guy in the next four and a half hours because he's going to die. Oh, well, you know what I meant. No, no. Vegas gave me five hours. You said four and a half. That was a half an hour ago. Oh, swell. Oh, I'm wasting my time. I've got to find him. The man with the gray face? No, the science professor. Walt, you're getting pretty confused. I'll see you later, huh? I left the 5th precinct, grabbed a cab, and 20 minutes later, I was walking across the campus of State College. Being Saturday, the big school was quiet and impressive as it stretched out over the dozen acres of snow-covered grounds. I located the administration building and found one lonely student working in the main office. Yes? Oh. Oh, Good afternoon. Looks like it might be. Can I do something for you? Well, uh, yes, I'm, I'm looking for Professor Carnes. Professor Carnes? Mm-hmm. He's uh, in the science department, isn't he? Professor hasn't been on campus since last Thursday. Faculty's been rather worried. You don't know where I could find him? No, but I'm through here in half an hour. I could help you look. <laughs> I bet you could. You know where the professor lives? It's on file. Well, why don't you be a good little freshman? And... Junior. A junior, and get me his address from that file. Because it's more fun not being a good little junior. 
and the college has certain rules. Well, then be a bad little junior and break the rules. I'm off in half an hour. Might be able to then. I've got to find a science professor, dear. And until I do, I'm afraid I'll have to pass the extension course in biology. And if you find the professor? We'll talk about it. I'm in here every afternoon. Hmm. College hasn't changed a bit since my days. Just jumped into second gear. The cute little junior walked her sweater and saddle shoes over to a long file and came back with Professor Kahn's home address. I thanked her, promised she could wear my gold badge if she passed lunch hour and took my cab back to town. At the professor's house, I met his sister, an elderly lady named Drusilla, who reminded me of my math teacher at PS 14. I haven't seen my brother since Friday morning, Mr. Diamond. And you have no idea where I can find him? No. Why do you want to find him? Well, I, uh, I'm a private detective, Miss Carnes. I, I was hired by a man named Vegas. Oh. oh, you know him? I most certainly do. Did he hire you to find my brother? That's right. He's not a good man, Mr. Diamond. I believe he's the reason my brother disappeared. Maybe you better tell me about it. My brother married a girl many years younger than himself, and unfortunately, it was not a good marriage. Did this Vegas person mention my brother's wife? No, he just told me he wanted to find the professor in order to pay him a debt. A debt? That's what he said. Watch out for that man, Mr. Diamond. He broke up my brother's marriage. Well, uh, maybe I'd better talk to your brother's wife. That would be impossible. My brother's wife killed herself. Oh, well, that's uh, too bad. My brother and I believe she killed herself because of that man, Vegas. My brother found out they were seeing each other. When he begged her to stop, she said that it was impossible and refused to give a reason. A week later, she killed herself. Have you ever seen Mr. Vegas? No, I have not. Why? Well, I was just wondering why any woman would go for a man like him, unless she liked ghosts. <laughs> I left Drusilla Kynes and looked at my watch. It was three o'clock, and I had only two hours left to find the professor and earn my $1,000. On the way to the nearest phone booth, I thought about the case and wondered if the $1,000 would be worth it in the long run. I watched part of my last five bucks drop in the phone and decided it was. Lieutenant Levinson, homicide. Diamond, Walt. I want to know about a suicide. Otis won't do it. Uh, professor Kynes' wife. I thought so. I checked for you on Vegas and the professor. The professor's wife jumped off a building five days ago. What did you find out about Vegas and the professor? Not much. At the inquest, the professor accused Vegas of breaking up his home and driving his wife to suicide. Neither man's got a record. Vegas is a professional photographer, and the professor has been teaching at State College for the past 11 years. I talked with some of the men at the inquest, and they remembered Vegas. They all say his skin looked pretty healthy at the time. Do me a favor, Walt. Check with the coroner and find out what would turn a man's skin that color. Sure. Got any leads on the professor yet? No, but he got a hunch. I just left his sister's, and uh, she doesn't seem at all worried about her brother's disappearance. So? So if she isn't worried, there's a good chance she knows he's all right. And if she knows he's all right, she might know where he is. Oh, no wonder they made you a lieutenant, Walt. You keep thinking like that, and someday you might even take over for Sergeant Otis. Bye. Bye. 
I left the phone booth and walked back toward Drusilla Khan's house. I staked myself out across the street in a corner gas station and warmed my blue little ears inside while I waited for the good Drusilla to contact her brother. I was just guessing, but it worked. Ten minutes later, Drusilla, dressed in a heavy fur coat that looked like it should be out on the river building a dam, walked out of her house and hailed a cab. I hailed one, too, and followed. Fifteen minutes later, I was back on the campus of State College. I watched her get out, walk around back of one of the buildings, knock on a door. She waited until someone opened it, and then she disappeared inside. I tried the door, but it was locked again. So I toured the building. The front door was locked, too. I set to work trying to pick the lock. I broke a Boy Scout knife, half a dozen fingernails, and several bobby pins that for some strange reason had found their way into my coat pocket. So I did the next best thing. I went back to the door that Drusilla had entered earlier and waited. Five frozen minutes later, the door opened and I stood there facing Drusilla while her look melted every icicle within ten feet. Standing directly behind her was a small man, his breath showing clearly against the cold air coming in short gasps. Drusilla. It's all right, Lewis. What do you want, Mr. Diamond? Nothing now, Miss Carnes. I have found it. Is that the man, Drusilla? Yes. He's a detective. Vegas hired him. It's all right, Drusilla. If Vegas wants to find me, I'm tired of hiding. Tell Vegas that I'll be waiting here, young man. Lewis, you know what he'll do. It's all right. Vegas knows he's only got a few hours left. Has that strange color of his skin got something to do with it? Yes. Have you seen him since the inquest, Professor? No. Well, that's funny. How did you know about his skin and that he only has a few hours left to live? Back to Richard Diamond, Private Detective, starring Dick Powell. Well, I'd found the professor and the thousand dollars was close to being mine. All I had to do was notify Vegas and collect. Even the professor guaranteed to help by staying and waiting for Vegas. But something was wrong. Standing there in the snow, looking at the timid professor... Something began to smell to high heaven. I turned and walked away. Even if the professor was going to run, what was I supposed to do? Carry him piggyback until I located my dying client? The thousand was important, but there was a lot more that had to be solved in a hurry. I went back to town and over to the photography shop run by Roger Vegas. Yeah, just something. I... What's the matter? Huh? Oh, nothing. Nothing. Uh, can I do something for you? I'm looking for Roger Vegas. Oh, he ain't in. Ain't I seen you someplace? You might have. I move around. Where can I find Vegas? He ain't here. I know he ain't. Where can I find him? Home, I guess. Home. That would be somewhere in New York, huh? I, uh, I supposed to give out the address. Uh, who wants him? I do, and I ain't supposed to give out the name. Uh, you're pretty sharp. Sharp guy, huh? Tell him to call Richard Diamond. Rich? Richard Diamond. My family thought it up. 
Okay. You know me now? No. No, I was mistaken. Well, I'm surprised. I sent you to Sing Sing ten years ago. Professor's hiding in the school? That's right, Walt. In the basement of the science building. I just left Roger Vegas's photography shop, and guess who was working there? Who? George Youngwell. Youngwell? The guy you sent up on that blackmail rap? Ten years ago. Well, I knew he was out, but I haven't heard anything about him in a couple of years. Well, he's working for Vegas. Must be keeping his nose clean. Oh, I've seen cleaner noses on pigs. Somebody want me? No. What is it, your melon head? Well, gee, don't yell at me like that. I got something more on Roger Vegas. Well, do you want to hand it to me, or would you just like to stand there and throw it? Oh. Gee, I wish you'd stay away from Diamond. Every time you see him, you get meaner and meaner. Come on, come on. What do you got? Here. Ain't nothing much robbery detail come up with it. Huh. That photography shop was broken into this morning, Rick. What was? Yeah, burglary got some prints on the windows. Belongs to some guy named Carnes. Carnes? Yeah. Says here, checked prints with State License Bureau. Prints belong to one Lewis Carnes, professor of science at State College. I'll see you later. Rick. Yeah? I nearly forgot. I checked with the coroner. Told him about the color of Vegas's skin. He said that it could only be caused by a strong dose of silver salts. Silver salts? Poisoning known as perinia. P-Y-R-I-N-N-I-A. Silver salts. Uh They used that in a photography shop. Carner said a man would have to drink about 30 grains for a fatal dosage. That's quite a bit. Hmm. Tell you how long he'd live? Yeah, anywhere from six to eight hours, according to the dosage. First the victim turns gray, then green. About what time was that photography shop broken into, Walt? Oh, sometime before nine this morning, before they opened up. Mm, Thanks. Where are you going? Going to talk to George Youngwell and then find out if my gray client has turned green yet. Hello, George. I told him, Diamond. I told him you wanted to see him. He said he was going over to your office. Oh, thanks. Look, what are you looking at me like that for? I'm going straight now. Swell. I got a good job, see? Legit. I don't want no trouble. I don't blame you. Okay. Mr. Vegas has gone over to your place. Why don't you go meet him, huh? Plenty of time. Look, he's in a hurry. He's got a big trouble, and he's got to take care of it in a hurry. Yeah, I know. He's got about an hour. Well, go on, go on. He, he paid you, didn't he? What do you do around here, George? Now, listen. Listen, you. I know my rights. I'm clean. I don't know what you're trying to prove, but I don't buy none of it. Now, get out of here, or I'll call a straight cop. You know why Vegas is going to die in an hour, George? Yeah. No, no, I don't. If I did, I don't have to tell you nothing. Nothing, see? Maybe you know why he wants to find the professor. No. Maybe you knew the professor's wife. No. Maybe you know why she got killed. No, no, no. Get out of here, Diamond. Get out. I'm clean. I'm legit now. Yeah, like a tub of mud. What do you mean? I want you to tell me about Vegas. What about him? What about him? He owns the shop, that's all. He makes pictures. What else does he do? Nothing, nothing that I know of. What else he does, I don't know about. What are you doing? Get away from me. I want to know all about it, George. I think I know most of it. I want to know the rest. No, I don't know. No, get away. I'm not a cop anymore, remember? I don't have to play the rules. You can't scare me. You won't get rough. You ain't a cop. It's right to lock you up if you get rough. Get away. I want to know why the professor's wife got killed. I don't know. I swear. I don't know. She she jumped. 
She jumped off the building. I thought you said you didn't know. Get away. No, please. Please. I could figure everything but the wife. If she jumps, she had to have a reason. When I saw you, George, I got the idea. Please, please. Blackmail, maybe, George. I'm legit. I told you. I'm working here. Blackmail with pictures, maybe? No, no. The dirtiest racket in the business. Diamond, no. You're going to tell me, George, I wish you were dead. I'm not telling you anything. Blackmail's the dirtiest racket I can think of. No, please, please. Please. If Vegas finds a professor, he'll kill him. I've got an hour to stop a murder. Okay. Okay, okay. Okay. We were blackmailing the wife. Phony pictures? Yeah. How many others? How many others? A lot of them. Lots. Okay, George. Let's get down to the station. I hate to get in the rut, but I'm going to see that you get another ten years. I hauled George Youngwell down to the precinct and went back to see the professor. He gave me some very interesting information. Interesting enough to make me call Walt and set up a plan. Then I went back to my office. When I walked in, I found Roger Vegas facing me. He turned an ugly shade of green, all but the gun in his hand. Where is he, Diamond? I've got less than an hour. I just left George Youngwell at the 5th Precinct. He's singing like a quartet. I thought that would happen, but I'm not worried. You've got plenty of poisoning, huh? That's right. You've had it for about seven and a half hours, ever since the professor broke into your store and made you drink the silver salts. Yes. He was getting even for his wife. I've got about 40 minutes to live. Where is he? Well, if you're short on time, maybe you'd better start looking. No, I don't think so. You're going to show me. No, I don't think so. I can't argue. I guess you won't live through it after all. Oh, no. Wait a minute. Let's not lose our heads. He's uh, at the college. Don't lie to me. He's in the science building, in the basement. You're coming along. It'll take 30 minutes to get there. If you're lying, I've got five minutes left to kill you. I think that's plenty of time. The professor's in this building. Is it open? It should be. Go ahead. Stop. I can't see anything. The lights are out. If you're lying to me, Diamond, if he's not here... He's here. Call him. Okay. Oh, Professor. Professor Carnes. Yes? Oh. He's in the back room. Tell him to come in. Will you come in here, Professor? Who is it? It's Diamond. The detective? Get him in here. Yes, Professor. Yes, what is it, Mr. Diamond? I... Hello, Professor. Vegas. Yes. Surprise. No. No, I knew you'd hired this detective. I knew you'd come. Not too late, huh? All right, Professor. I've got but five minutes, so you're going to die before me. You're a pretty terrible man. Look who's talking. Break into my store, pull a gun on me, make me drink that stuff. You're a killer and you're going to pay for it? I'm not a killer yet. I haven't got the time to talk about it. You won't get away with it. You think you pulled it off just great, don't you? Well, I'm not only going to kill you, but I'm going to tell you something. I want to see how you take it. I got a little additional revenge, Professor. Your wife didn't jump. I pushed her. I don't believe it. She was going to stop paying me. Going to tell you about the pictures I was blackmailing her with. Well, I couldn't have that. So I pushed her off the roof. That's all I wanted to know, Vegas. What do you mean? Walt. Very nice, Lieutenant Levinson. Here's his gun. Thank you, Mr. Diamond. 
Get up, Vegas. You cheated me. But you've got to take him. He made me drink this stuff. Oh, relax. You're going to be all right. You're crazy. I'm going to die, but he'll be the murderer. It's a little satisfaction anyway. You'll hang, Professor. Tell him, Professor. You lose all the way around, Vegas. What do you mean? It takes 30 grains of silver salt to be fatal. I only gave you 15. No. In another few hours, you'll return to your natural color. No. Oh, no. Oh, no. Don't be so unhappy, Vegas. You tried so hard to die, I think the state will do everything they can to see that you make it. Dick Powell will soon be seen in the RKO picture, Cry Danger. Tonight's adventure of Richard Diamond was written by Blake Edwards with music by Frank Worth. Our director is Helen Mack. Featured in tonight's cast were Virginia Gregg, Wilms Herbert, and Arthur Q. Bryan. Listen next week for another exciting transcribed adventure of Richard Diamond, starring Dick Powell. This is your FBI. The official broadcast from the files of the FBI follows immediately. Stay tuned. This program came to you from Hollywood. This is the American Broadcasting Company. As originally heard on ABC on February 16th, 1951. That was the 88th, no, excuse me, the 83rd episode of Richard Diamond, Private Detective, and the name of that episode was The Gray Man. Thank you, Miles, for recommending that one. We appreciate it. Uh, Dick Powell is kind of an interesting guy. I was never convinced of him as a tough guy. You know, he's from Arkansas. Would you ever guess that? Had most of his formative years there, then moved to uh, Pittsburgh. His first film contract came in 1932, and he made his film debut as a singer and a band leader, and then went on to star as a boyish crooner in movie musicals like 42nd Street, Footlight Parade, and Gold Diggers of 1933. He often appeared uh, opposite Ruby Keeler and Joan Blondell, who he was married to for eight years. In 1935, Dick Powell was cast in A Midsummer Night's Dream, and it was, it was not something that he liked doing, and he didn't think he was any good at it, and he, he was probably right. He desperately wanted to expand his range, but the studio would not allow him to do anything other than these uh, song and dance uh, roles, and so he bought his release from Warner Brothers in 1940. In 1944, his career changed dramatically when he was cast in the first of a series of films noir as private detective, no, not Richard Diamond, as Philip Marlowe in the movie Murder, My Sweet. The film was a big hit, and Powell successfully had reinvented himself as a dramatic actor. Later, Powell was the first actor to play Marlowe on radio in 1944 and 1945, and on television in a 1954 episode of Climax. Powell also played the slightly less hard-boiled detective Richard Rogue in the radio series Rogue's Gallery, and then, of course, he ended up playing Richard Diamond on the radio. Besides films and radio, he went on to a TV career, and he was one of the four stars 
in Four Star Productions. He, along with David Niven, Charles Boyer, and Ida Lupino, and they used to put on an anthology series, and each week it was another one of the four stars that would uh, that would perform in the show. And I remember that one from when I was a kid. Maybe you do too. I can remember, and I want to say it was on Friday night. I might be wrong about that, but I can remember watching that. And I remember that June Allison was a guest on there from time to time. And of course, June Allison married Dick Powell in 1945, and they remained married until his death in 1963. He was only 58 years old. This episode that we listened to tonight, you might have heard, was presented by Camel Cigarettes. And at the end, there was an ad for Camels that I cut out. I always usually cut out the cigarette ads. But it was for Camels, and Dick Powell said, I smoke them and I enjoy them, and you should smoke them too. And Dick Powell died of lung cancer at a very young 58. Sadly, that was so typical of the people of his generation. Just one more thing about Dick Powell. He and his wife had a house in Brentwood, the Brentwood section of Los Angeles. But it wasn't just a house. It was a 40-acre ranch. And it's just like five minutes off the San Diego freeway as you're going up into the Sepulveda Pass. I can't think what they call Amber something. Amber Estates, I think it was. But anyway... They lived in this home until his death. The home was recently auctioned. It was like 2014 or 15. It was sold again. But I found a YouTube video that was used to promote the property when it was sold. Now, it doesn't mention Dick Powell and June Allison in the video at all. But this was their home for many years. And this was the home that was used to serve as Jonathan Remember the show with uh, Robert Wagner and Stephanie Powers? What was her name? Jonathan and somebody Hart. They were this rich couple, and they lived in this huge home. And that was the Dick Powell, June Allison home that they used for filming that. At any rate, I just found it so interesting. This is 48 acres right in Los Angeles. And it's in a canyon. It's got its own lake. It has its own water supply. And it's just really something to see. So I took the video and put it on my website. Uh, So if you'd like to see that video, it's really fascinating. It's only about, I don't know, five minutes long, I guess. But go to boomerboulevard.com and then look up show number 98. That's the show we're doing today. And you can watch the video there. I think it's worth seeing. And it's uh, really amazing to me. People could have that much land in the Los Angeles area. And it's still intact today. And, you know, it's sold for a really ridiculously low price. I think it was something like $8 million. And there are homes in the Hollywood Hills and in Beverly Hills that sell for that much. So I don't know what the deal is, but look at it. It's, it's really fascinating. Well, rest assured, we'll have more Richard Diamond Private Detective in the weeks ahead. Tell you what, you guys are looking a little, little tired. Is the heat getting to you? Is that what it is? Well, here's something that'll wake you up. In fact, this is something that will have you up and dancing. I dare you to listen to this next song without at least tapping your foot or clapping your hands or moving somehow. I mean, you just can't do it.
I told you you couldn't sit still. I told you, 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 you couldn't sit still. Oh, everybody was moving. You should have seen Chester in there. Man, he was really gyrating. Was that kind of, that's kind of like the, twi- the what? The, the mashed potatoes. Very good. Chester can really move. Well, that was a little-known group from back in the mid-60s. What was their name? The, the Beatles? Is that Beatles? Is that the way you pronounce it? The Beatles, yeah. <laughs> well, it's one of those things, folks. Uh, we just got to keep you up and moving around here. Can't let you be going to sleep. And now we're about to back into the comedy corner. <laughs> Something familiar. Something peculiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Ah! Something appealing. Something appalling. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Nothing with kings. Nothing with crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Ah! Situation. No complications. Nothing portentous or polite. I think we have a real treat for you tonight on the Comedy Corner. We're, we're going to play a show that you've probably never heard before, unless you're a real old-time radiophile, and then maybe you've heard of it. But there was only eight episodes. Actually, well, yeah, eight episodes plus the pilot, maybe a total of nine, eight or nine. This show was produced to be the summer replacement for Lux Radio Theater. And so those episodes played during the summer break for Lux. Now, this pilot episode that we're going to hear tonight was produced in March of that year. I'm not too sure exactly when it originally aired or in what time slot. We have a date of uh, March 30th, 1950. This was the brainchild of Jay Summers. And he was a fellow that was uh, born and raised in upstate New York. His dad ran a farm up there. Not very successfully. He worked his fingers to the bone, but Jay watched his, his father go broke. And it was this childhood memory that was the inspiration for the show that we're about to hear. But first, just a little bit about Jay. He came to Hollywood, oh, I don't know, I guess in the late 30s, early, well, his first big break was in 1940, where he got a job writing for Milton Berle. And he went on to write for a, a number of other people. Red Skelton, he wrote for Spike Jones. Um, he did some Lum and Abner episodes. So he became very proficient and very well-known and very well-respected in Hollywood as a screenwriter and also as a producer. Well, in 1950, CBS came to him and wanted him to do this replacement show for the summer, the summer replacement, and that's when he drew on his childhood memories and came up with a show entitled Granby's Green Acres. Oh, yes more about that in a second. He went on to write in television. He went on to write for Ozzie and Harriet, a number of television shows, including Petticoat Junction, which was a spinoff of the Beverly Hillbillies. Both of those shows were created by Paul Henning. Henning was asked to come up with a third spinoff. He said he would be spread too thin, but he recommended Summers to take the role. And so Summers decided to dust off Granby's Green Acres shorten the title to Green Acres, uh, tighten up the script a little bit, make it perhaps a little more contemporary, and that's the show that we came to know as Baby Boomers that starred Eddie Albert and Ava Gabor. But originally, 15 years earlier, 
it had appeared on radio starring Gail Gordon, yes, Gail Gordon again, and B. Benaderet, who was such a, a fabulous character actress uh, back in the days of Hollywood radio. So that's what we're going to listen to tonight, Granby's Green Acres. And this show, like I said, has an original air date of March the 30th in 1950. And in this pilot, Granby quits his job. I hope you enjoy it. Granby's Green Acres. Starring Gail Gordon as John Granby. <coughs> B. Benaderet as his wife, Martha. <coughs> Shirley Mitchell as daughter, Janice. <coughs> And Polly Bear is Ebb, the hired hand. didn't see you for a minute. I was busy writing a story for next week's issue of the Doveville Clarion. I'm Dave Winslow, editor of the Clarion. Doveville is a nice little community. Got a healthy climate. It's two and a half inches above sea level. We got a church, a firehouse, a school, and a railroad station. Someday, we hope to get a railroad. <laughs> well, anyway, this story I'm writing is a human interest feature called Man with a Bee in His Bonnet. It's about a city fellow named John Granby. Martha? Yes, John? Worked in a bank in the city and had one of them real banking kind of minds. Martha, I've just been going over our household accounts. Uh, John, you've just finished eating dinner. Let it digest. Martha, do you realize that last month you spent $56 more than I made? Oh, I don't see how that could be, John. Every time I made out a check, I entered it in the checkbook. It came out exactly even. Even? <laughs> well, yes. At the end of the month, there was one stub for every check. <laughs> What am I going to do with you? We plan a budget and you promise me faithfully that you'll stick to it. But you just ignore the budget and spend more and more money. Martha, how can you be such a... a, a, a Democrat? <laughs> John, I do my best, but prices are so high. Martha, Martha, let's face it. The price of food wouldn't be any problem to us if we'd done what I wanted to do five years ago and bought a farm. Uh, Why, now we'd be getting all our food for nothing. John Granby, I can't understand you. You've got a good position, a home, a, a wife and a daughter, but you're always talking about throwing everything away to buy a farm. But, honey, that's all I've ever dreamed about. Oh, I'm not denying that now I've got security, but I want more than that. I want to prove that I can make something of myself with my own hands. That I can succeed starting with nothing. 
Just my brain. What? I'm... <laughs> I mean, I can start with my brain, which is nothing. That is... <laughs> my brain is something, but Did I thought I, I could know. start with... What are you trying to say? That I want to have the feeling of accomplishing something. On a farm, I'd have that feeling. I'd, I'd take a seed, a tiny little seed, and I'd plant it in the ground. Then I'd cover it up with dirt. And then I'd water it. And pretty soon, what would I have? A dirty little wet seed. <laughs> Martha, Martha, don't you understand? A farm would give me independence. If I need an apple, I can pick it. Or if I want a potato, I can dig it. Or if I want an egg... You can lay it. I can lay it. <laughs> of course not. This is ridiculous. Simply ridiculous. What's ridiculous, Dad? Oh, Janice. Janice, I want to ask you a question. Okay, Dad. Remember, I want you to think very carefully before you give me an answer. Okay. What do you think of the idea of our moving to a farm? I think it's ridiculous, stupid, and impractical. Janice, when I want your opinion, I'll ask <laughs> But, Dad, you said Now, 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 let's not have any arguing. Now, John, you read your paper, and Janice and I will do the dinner dishes. Oh, well, I did them already, Mom. Oh, well, thank you, dear. That's okay. Uh, say, Mom, what kind of meat was that we had? I never tasted anything like it. Oh, that wasn't meat. It wasn't? Tasted just like it. Uh-uh. It was a rutabaga burger. <laughs> a rutabaga burger? burger? Uh-huh. I found the recipe in the ladies' home journal. Oh, sounds more like something you'd find in Popular Mechanics. <laughs> well, dear, I told you prices today are just impossible. Oh, they sure are. How much did you say steak was the last time you bought it? A dollar and 27 cents a pound. A dollar twenty-seven cents a pound? Why, I wouldn't pay that for meat if they sliced it off Betty Grable. <laughs> well, prices like that are just ridiculous. Well, if you think that's ridiculous, butter is 93 cents a pound. Sometimes it's been a dollar. Oh, I can't believe it. After all, what is butter? Just milk that's been pushed too far? <laughs> you know, Mom, maybe Dad is right. Maybe you ought to let him buy a farm. Now, Janice... Your father and I have already settled that. <laughs> I was just kidding. Well, it's nothing to kid about. I think it's a wonderful no, idea. No, John. But, Martha, if you'd only John, let me... John, I refuse I'm... to argue the point anymore. If you feel that you've got to plant something, buy yourself a... a, a flower pot. <laughs> a power flood? <laughs> a flower pot? I, I, I'm talking about something bigger. Then buy a window box. A window box? Well, what's so funny? I thought you were going to say window box. Why should I say window box? Well, you said power flot. Oh, well, that was a mistake. Now, where was I? Where were I? Uh, talking about a window box. Oh, yes, yes. Well, maybe I will buy a window box. <laughs> oh, 
Well, all right, all right. I'll show you that even when it comes to small-scale cultivation, you can save money. Now, that ought to convince you. John, you've been talking this way for years. What is it that makes you so anxious to be a farmer? Oh, I don't know. I guess that it's just like they say. When you've got to grow, you've got to grow. <laughs> By now, I guess you know why I call this here story in the clarion man with a bee in his bonnet. Mr. Granby is the bee, and the bee he's got is the farming bee. The only trouble was that every time he tried to stick his head out of the hive, Mrs. Granby sprayed him with DDT. <laughs> of course, uh, that didn't kill the bee. It uh, just took a little of the buzz out of his stinger. <laughs> a window box ain't a farm, but... Then half a loaf is better than none. Good day, sir. What can I do for you? Uh, do you carry window boxes? Well, certainly. If they're not too heavy. <laughs> I beg your pardon? It was a little joke. Yes, sir, we have about as fine an assortment of window boxes as you'll find in any garden supply store in the city. Good, good. I'll take one. All right. Now, will there be anything else? Uh, yes, I'd like some dirt for it. Dirt? Oh, well, I guess we can dig some up for you. <laughs> uh, what kind do you have? Well, it's... it's, uh... uh brown. <laughs> and it's got, uh... Well... When you... when you shovel it up, it are, uh... Uh... Brown. And... And, well, it looks like, uh... It's dirt! <laughs> oh, but uh, there are all different kinds. You see, I'm interested in farming, and I've done a great deal of reading about soil. How fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the pH of the soil has a great deal to do with how well a plant will grow. Really? <laughs> pH is a chemical term which indicates whether the soil is too acid or too alkaline. Uh, well, I don't know what ours is, but I'll be glad to let you taste such. <laughs> That, uh, that won't be necessary. I'll test it when I get it home, and then if it's too acid, I can always alkalize it. What do you do, give each plant an Alka-Seltzer? <laughs> no. No, you don't do anything like that. Well, I should hope not. That fizzing might drive a geranium out of its mind. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not going to plant flowers, you see, only vegetables. Uh, which reminds me, I'd better buy some seeds. Certainly. What kind do you want? Uh, I told you, vegetable. I know, but what kind of vegetables? Oh, well, I don't know. I haven't got too much room. Say, how about picking out one seed of each? <laughs> one seed of each? Yes, yes. Uh, what would you suggest? You wouldn't do it anyway. <laughs> Wait here, I'll go back and pick them up. 
Well, sir, Mr. Granby took his window box home and went to work planting his midget garden. About two months later... Say, Mom, it's getting late. Aren't you going to cook dinner tonight? No, dear, your father's cooking it. Dad? Oh, I hope we survive. No! <laughs> I hope he survives. That's about the fifth time he's burned himself. What's the occasion? It's harvest time. <laughs> Your father picked all the vegetables in his window box today, and he insisted on cooking them himself. Oh, no! Come and get it! Uh, we're coming, dear. Come along, Janice. All right. Well, it's all finished. Now, sit down, sit down, sit down. <sighs> Thank you, dear. Uh, would you like me to serve? Uh, no, no, I'll do it in a moment. But first, I want to point something out. These two casseroles contain the results of my first vegetable crop. The total cost was approximately four cents a pound, which is ten cents cheaper than they can be bought in any market. I hope I've proved my point. Well, you certainly have, dear. Good for you, Dad. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Martha, if you'll pass your plates up again serving. Oh, here they are, John. Uh -huh. There's Janice's. Thank you. Uh, yours, dear. Now, mine. There. I hope you two feel as good about this as I do, because it kind of makes us all members of the farming fraternity. This is the kind of meal that millions of farm families sit down to every night. I can't believe it. You, you can't believe what? That so many people can live on two peas and a string bean. <laughs> Well, with the harvest over, Mr. Granby settled down to the normal routine of his business at the bank. Hello, dear. Oh, John, where have you been all day? I called the bank and they said you were out. Well, I told you last night I had to go up to Doveville on business. Saw Mr. Parker about making a collection on his note. I went out to his farm. Oh, did everything work out for you? Oh, of course, of course. Although that Parker was a pretty shrewd article. When I got to his place and told him I was from the bank, he wouldn't let me in. Turned his police dog loose on me. <laughs> oh, my. But I wasn't going to let any mutt frighten me off. I looked him right in the eye and walked past him. I showed him who was the master. Yes. Well, dear, sit down. You must be tired. Uh, no, it hurts less if I stand. <laughs> Well, I finally got Parker to let me in the house. I didn't waste any time. Parker, I said to him, you owe the City National Bank some money, and unless you pay, we're going to take over your farm. He finally saw the light. And he paid you the money? No. I bought the farm. <laughs> You are listening to Granby's Green Acres, starring Gail Gordon. Now, here is part two. Well, Mr. Granby finally did it. 
He quit his job at the bank and bought a farm near our town of Doveville. That was about one of the biggest news stories I printed in the Clarion in a long while. About a month later, he and his family set out for the new house. Ah, what a day. What a day. Well, Martha, we'll soon be there. (laughs) (laughs) Will you please stop that crying? You've been doing it ever since we left. Oh, now, Dad, don't nag Mom. She feels terrible. After all, she's just left a home she's lived in for 20 years. She's left her friends, everything. Well, so have I, and I'm not crying. I'm happy. See, Martha, I'm laughing. Ha-ha! <laughs> <laughs> Goodness sake. Oh, Dad, how could you do a thing like this? How could I do a thing like this? You and your mother talked me into it. Prices are too high, you said. On a farm, we'd get free butter and vegetables, you said. <laughs> Dad, we didn't mean you had to run right out and buy a farm. Why, you never even let Mother and me see it. Well, I wanted it to be a surprise. Oh, some surprise. How do we know what kind of a place you bought? Why, why, it might even be like this one we're coming to down the road. Look at that old broken-down house. It's overrun with weeds. The barn is sagging. It needs paint. And look at that... Oh, oh. Stopping here? Is there something wrong with the car? No, Janice. Dad, you mean? Welcome home. Just let me unlock the front door. Have it a minute here. There. Well, Martha, shall I carry you over the threshold? Uh, that's funny. She did the same thing on our honeymoon. Look, look, Martha. Cheer up. It's going to be all right. Now, come on. Let's have a smile. That's it. Now, let me get my handkerchief and wipe away those tears. There we are. Now, blow. (laughs) Martha! Oh, 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 that was just the bus going down the road. Giving up your job, putting most of our savings into this place. But I guess it'll work out. Why, of course it will. Now, come on, let me show you around. Uh, now, go through here. Now, 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 this is the kitchen. Oh, my, it's large. Sure, sure. So wait till our furniture gets here. Won't it look swell with the refrigerator over there, the electric stove over there, the dishwasher there. Uh, and we'll ha- Dad, hmm? do yeah? you mind if I ask you a question? Why, of course not. Go right ahead. Where are the electrical outlets? The electrical outlets? Why, they're, um, 
Oh, well, they should... Uh, well, they're usually... Uh, uh, <laughs> John, there aren't any outlets. And I don't see any lights either. No electricity? We're preposterous. How did Mr. Parker shave? Uh, Dad, this may come as a surprise to you, but there are a lot of homes in this country that don't have electricity. Well, what about Hoover Dam? And vice versa. <laughs> There doesn't seem to be any gas, either. How am I going to do the cooking? Well, I don't know. I'll, I'll see. Oh, so there are no electrical outlets, eh? What's this hole down here near the baseboard? Just let me put my hand in there and we... Dad! Dad, what happened? Did you get a shock? No, no, a mouse bit me. A mouse? Oh! Oh, Dad! Mother's fainted! Get some water! Okay, okay, Pump outside. I'll get some. I'll get some. Oh, water, water, water. Oh, here's the pump. Here's the pump. What's the matter with this darn thing? Hello? Hello? Need some help? No. Appears to me like you do. Will you please leave me alone? My wife has fainted. I need some water. You ain't gonna get any from that pump. Why not? She needs priming. Well, what do I prime it with? Water. <laughs> How can I prime it with water if I haven't got any water? Get some. <laughs> Where? There's a pump three miles down the road. <laughs> oh, well, I'll get in my car and drive right down there. It ain't worth it. Why not? That pump needs priming, too. <laughs> Well, where can I get the water to prime that pump to get the water to prime this pump? Six mile down the road. Are you sure that pump doesn't need priming, too? Yeah. What makes you so positive? It's a well. Look, look, this is an emergency. I've got to get some water for my... I'll back. get it for you. Yeah, oh, oh. Oh, well, that's very neighborly of you, Mr... Name's Eb. Eb, yeah. Used to work on this place for old man Parker. You need a hard hand? Uh, no, I don't, no. Okay, I'll get the water anyway. Well, thanks. I'll, I'll Dad, appreciate... Uh, Dad, Mother's come too. Oh, thank goodness. I'd better go in and see her. Well, I don't think I would just now. Give her a little while to cool off. But, Janet... Now, look, I... if you want to do something, why don't you see if you can find us some sort of a stove to cook on? All right. All right, dear, yes. Stove. Stove. Now, where can I get a stove? Use your water. Oh, oh thanks very much. I, I... Wait a second. I thought you said the well was six miles down the road. It is. Then how did you get the water so quickly? I had it in my car. In your car? Why didn't you say so? You didn't ask me. Oh! Well, I guess I'll be going. You sure you don't need no hard man? I'm positive. I'm perfectly able. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Didn't you say you used to work for old man Parker? Yeah. Say, what did he use to cook with? A stove? <laughs> I assume that, but what kind? Wood burner. Well, do you know where I could get one? 
I think Parker left his old one down behind the barn. He did? Great, great. Say, would you give me a hand getting it into the house? You still don't want to hire me? No. For a man who ain't hired, I sure am doing a lot of work. <laughs> So Mr. Granby settled down into the routine of farm life. And one morning, weeks later... John. John, wake up. What's the matter? The rooster is crowing. Well, turn it off. John, will you please get up? It's 4.30. 4.30? What's the matter with you, Martha? I don't have to get to the bank till 9. You don't work in a bank anymore. You own a farm, remember? Now get up. All right, all right, all right. Oh, I could have slept if it hadn't been for that darn rooster. Shut up! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I never seemed to... John, what's the matter? My pants are cold. (laughs) Will you please get a move on? Eb is waiting for you to help him with the milking. Oh, that Eb is some hired man. I hired him to help me, and I end up helping him. John, will you please hurry? I am, I am. Let me wash up. Well, there's water in the pitcher. Just pour it into the bowl. Okay. Oh, Don. What's the matter? Can't you find the washcloth? I've got the washcloth, but where's the ice pick? Don, will you... I'm going, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. Uh... Morning, Mr. Granby. Good morning. Sleep well? What I did of it, yes. (laughs) Come on, Eb, let's get going. Rag mop. <laughs> Eb, you have to be so cheerful. Well, I feel good. It's going to be a beautiful day. How can you tell? The moon is still out. <laughs> oh, here's the barn. Your boss is waiting for us. You want to try milking her this morning, Mr. Granby? Well, of course. Of course. How am I going to learn if I don't try? Let me see. Put my hands here. A little further forward. I know, I know, I know. I pull down like this. She's empty. No. 
Because she ain't empty. You ain't doing it right. Here, let me show you. So, 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 bossy, so. All right, now watch me. When you pull down, you move your fingers like this. <laughs> See? Show off. <laughs> now you try. Okay, okay. <laughs> I don't think she likes me. Of course she does. Now just keep at it. All right, all right. <laughs> gently, gently, you ain't pulling taffy. <laughs> as gentle as I can. Is there anything in the icebox? Yes, 200 pounds of butter. <laughs> what? what? Dad, can't you sell this milk somewhere? Well, I've tried to, but the dairy won't buy milk from you unless you have a special kind of cow barn. And that costs $8,000. Oh, dear. Uh, Dad, Mother and I have been talking, and we think you should put this place up for sale. You're not serious. Well, Dad, you're just not cut out to be a farmer. But I haven't had a real chance to try it. I, I haven't even planted a crop yet. Dad, look, I've been talking to Eb. He says the land on this farm has been overworked. The soil needs care. It'll take too much time and money. Oh, what does Eb know about farming? <laughs> well, he's lived on one all his life. <laughs> yeah? Well, I've got booklets from the Department of Agriculture. <laughs> now, now, look, look. I'll make you a sporting proposition. You say nothing can grow on this farm. Well, I'll bet you that I can plant a crop and harvest it. If that fails, I'm willing to admit that I was wrong and sell it. Oh, Dad, you're just... Now, a... now wait, wait a moment, Janice. I'll take that bet, John. But, Mother... Janice, it's what your father wants. But, Mom, you... Janice, I'm surprised at you. Has your father ever let us down? Well, no, of but he hasn't. And I don't think he will now. All his life, he's had his heart set on owning a farm. If the worst comes to the worst, we can always go back to the city and get a job. But first, I think we should give him a few months to make good. Uh... 
so Mr. Granby went to work to prove to his wife and daughter that he could make a go of the farm. Morning, noon, and night, he worked in the fields, hoeing, milking, shoveling, pumping, raking, and inside of a month, single-handed, he got the following result. It's a badly sprained back, Mrs. Granby. You'll have to stay in bed for six weeks. flat on his back for almost two months. Eb tended to things for him, and then came the day he could get up and look at his crop. Martha, would you please get me my shoes? I left them downstairs. All right, dear. Oh, boy, this is the day. Just wait till you see that field I planted. I'll show you if I'm a farmer or not. Yes, dear. Well, get my shoes! All right! How's Dad? He's yelling again, so he must be better. He wants to go down and see the field he planted. Mom, does he know? No. I couldn't bear to tell him while he was in bed suffering that way. Nothing grew. Not even a weed. (laughs) Eb said he did his best, but... Oh, Janice, I I just don't know what this disappointment will do to your father. Well, Mom, if something did grow in that field, you know what it would mean. We'd be stuck here on this farm. Well, yes, but I wouldn't mind, just as long as your father was happy. Somehow I've got a lot of confidence in him. I think he can make a go of this farm. Mom, listen. Can you stall him for a half hour? Well, I think so, dear, but why? I've got to get to that vegetable store in town. Stall him as long as you can. Martha, Martha, can't you walk any faster? Oh, yes, dear, but I'm worried about your bag. Well, never mind my bag. If I didn't know you better, I'd think you were trying to stall. Why, John, why should I do that? I don't know. Where's Janice? Uh, well, I think she went down to the field to meet us. She, oh, yes, there she is. Janice! Hello. Uh, Dad, I came down Janice, here Janice, Janice, will you get out of my way? I can't... Martha, look! There are things growing! Growing things, they're growing, growing, growing things, they are, they're growing, growing. And you two said that this land wasn't any good, but I told you I'd make things grow, I told you. Oh, you sure did, Yes, just just look at that field, little green things sticking their heads above the ground, I've got to pick one. Oh, John, be careful of your back. Look, look, Martha, a carrot, it's amazing, simply amazing. Why is it amazing? You planted a seed, covered it with dirt, watered it, and pretty soon, what do you get? A carrot. Well, that's what's so amazing about it. This is where I planted
You have just heard the first episode of Granby's Green Acres, starring Gail Gordon. Granby's Green Acres was written and directed by Jay Summers. Music was composed and conducted by Opie Cakes. This is Bob Lamont speaking. From March of 1950, that was Granby's Green Acres, which ended up being a summer replacement show for Lux Radio Theater that year. Oh, what a cast, huh? Gail Gordon and B. Benaderet. Gail Gordon. You know, he, he first got on radio in 1926, but by 1933, he, he was already appearing in shows like Lux Radio Theater, Flash Gordon, Sherlock Holmes. He played with a lot of big-name stars. But his big break in comedy, and that, of course, became his forte, was in 1941 when he was given a guest spot on Fibber McGee and Molly. And that, of course, was spun into the role of Mayor Latrivia that he played on that show for 12 years. By 1947, though, he was not only doing double duty, but often triple duty and more on various network radio shows. And it was soon after that that he was signed on to play Osgood Conklin on the radio show Our Miss Brooks. But that wasn't the only show he was doing at the time. He was also playing professional banker Rudolph Atterbury. And B. Benaderet was playing his wife Iris on Lucille Ball's radio sitcom My Favorite Husband with Richard Denning. And interestingly enough, it was those characters that were used to inspire the characters on Granby's Green Acres. They changed their names, but other than that, they basically played the same characters, just in a new setting. Interestingly enough, Lucille Ball was then asked to take My Favorite Husband to television. And there, again, they made some adjustments, and they came up with I Love Lucy. Of course, Desi Arnaz became her husband in real life and her husband on the show. Well, Lucy originally wanted Gail Gordon and B. Benadera to play the roles of Fred and Ethel Mertz. But B. Benadera was already signed to play Blanche on the Burns and Allen show, and that's, that's the role I remember her most from. I never watched Petticoat Junction, but I remember her as Blanche. And, of course, Gail Gordon was uh, working as Mr. Conklin on television on Our Miss Brooks. And so those roles, the, those of uh, Fred and Ethel Mertz, went to Vivian Vance and William Frawley, and the rest is history. Before we go, here's one other interesting fact. Green Acres, the TV show, (laughs) now get this, was technically a spinoff of both B. Benadaret's old radio show, Granby's Green Acres, and her television show, Petticoat Junction. How about that? Just give me that countryside. New York is where I'd rather stay. I get allergic smelling hay. I just adore a penthouse view. Darling, I love you, but give me Park Avenue. The chores. The stores. Fresh air. Times Square. You are my wife. Goodbye. 
Whoa, that was the theme, the television theme song from Green Acres, and that was sung by Eddie Albert and Ava Gabor. And while we're still laughing and before we get all serious with an episode of Gunsmoke, let's listen to a routine that Bob Newhart did back in the 60s that was really one of his best. It was kind of a coincidence this past week. There was a movie on bomb disposals in Germany, and, and then there was an item in the paper about this plane was flying along, and somehow a, a bomb came loose and fell. It didn't explode. It landed, and they had to send out an expert team to uh, disarm the bomb. And it's always a, an expert, courageous team of men who disarm these bombs. And I got to wondering what would happen if a team of non-experts uh, <laughs> ever tried to disarm one of these bombs. And I picture a small coastal city, very small coastal city with a beach, and uh, we see the police chief, he's sitting in his office, and he's expecting nothing more uh, than a phone call from one of his patrolmen on the beach. And I, I think it'd go something like this. Uh, yeah, hello, uh, Lieutenant Stevenson here. Patrolman Hackmaster, oh, hello, Willard. You're, uh, you're a little late reporting in, aren't you, Willard? You found a shell on the beach. You, uh, you think that's unusual, do you, Willard, finding a shell on a beach? It's, it's not that kind of shell. What, what's the matter, Willard? Doesn't it sound like the ocean when you hold it up to your ear? Oh, that, that kind of shell. Well, I'll tell you what, Willard, I'll send somebody out in the morning. And we... Oh, is that right? Gee, I was uh, kind of hoping that was your watch making that noise, Willard. I'm, uh, I'm going to give it to you straight, Willard. Uh, you, you got a live one there. <laughs> don't, Willard, don't hang up. Don't. That's an order, Willard. And, and stop that whining. <laughs> uh, now, you're perfectly safe, Willard. There's nothing to worry about as long as it's ticking. <laughs> uh, when it stops ticking, that's, that's something else again, Willard. Now listen, Willard, get control of yourself. Now, you and I are gonna disarm that thing. I- I've got the instruction manual. Well, no, I'm, I'm not coming down there, Willard. I... <laughs> well, I mean, I just can't leave the office anytime I want to, Willard. No, don't bring it in here, Willard, no! <laughs> uh, look, Willard, I'm taking just as big a chance as you are. I mean, this is my responsibility. I mean, if that thing goes off, it's me they're going to want to talk to, not you, you know. Uh, all right, now, will it, uh, describe it to me. Uh, it sounds like some kind of torpedo, will it? It must be one of ours. Are, are there any markings on it? It says made in Japan, huh? Now, it still could be one of ours, will it? Is there a serial number or anything like that on it? X53L7. Let, let, let me look that up, will you? Just a minute. Oh, boy, you found a beauty there, Willard. <laughs> you, know, you know how powerful that baby is? Six city blocks, Willard. <laughs> what do you mean you'll call me back? 
There's a telephone booth seven blocks away. Well, I... Now, stop that whining, Willard. <laughs> Willard, I know this is dangerous, but if we can save one human life, that's the way you feel about it, huh? <laughs> well, Willard, get control of yourself now. Listen, Willard, according to this, there's a... Uh, how long has that thing been ticking? About five, six minutes, huh? Uh-uh. No, nothing, Willard, nothing. No. No, we're just going to have to work a little faster than I thought. Uh, but, uh, Willard, according to the manual here, uh, about six inches from the, the tail end of it, th there's a plate there. Yeah, and it's held on by four screws. Now, it says, uh, this is very important. This, this plate uh, should be removed with an LT-507 screwdriver with a, a plastic handle and a demagnetized head. Yeah, you don't have one, huh? <laughs> I'll use a coin then, Willard. <laughs> okay, you got, you got it off, Willard? Okay. Well, that thing sure is complicated. <laughs> I can't make heads or tails out of this. <laughs> no, don't worry, Willard. I'll get that, that thing fixed if it's the last. We'll, we'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Listen, uh, Willard, uh, there's kind of a little, uh, oh, hoochamajigger in there, uh, a wheel of some kind. Uh, why, why don't you try turning the wheel, Willard? Oh, I, I don't know, turn it to the left, see what happens. <laughs> yeah, I, I can hear it now, Willard. It's ticking a lot faster, isn't it? <laughs> uh, you, better, you better turn it back, Willard. <laughs> okay, let's see. Uh, uh, listen, there are two wires here. Uh, it says here, under no conditions... Oh, somebody spilled coffee all over this thing. <laughs> well, one is kind of a, a grayish blue, and uh, the other one's kind of a bluish gray, Willard. <laughs> uh, Willard, who are you talking to there? A little boy. Willard, get him out of there. If, if that thing goes off, we're... He says it's his. <laughs> it's a toy torpedo. Willard, let me talk to the kid, will you? He ran down to the beach with it. Willard, I think you better come into the office. We ought to have a little talk. You hung me up here for 10 minutes because the kid... What was that noise, Willard? The, the toy torpedo just sunk a fishing trawler, huh? Well, it's all right, Willard. It's out of our hands now. It's in the Coast Guards. Right. Goodbye. Goodbye.
you know what that music means. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That music tells us that it is time for us to travel back in time. Back to the 1870s, the Old West, Dodge City, Kansas. We are walking up Front Street, shoulder to shoulder with Marshal Matt Dillon. Along the way, we're going to run into Doc and Kitty and Chester and the whole gang on Gunsmoke. We have a good one tonight. It was first broadcast on November the 18th in 1956 over CBS. And this one is about a love triangle, but it's a little more complicated than that because two of the three people in this triangle are brothers. It's going to be up to Matt to stop another Shakespearean-type tragedy. The name of this episode is Brother Welp. It's a good one. Here it comes. City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun smoke. Starring William Conrad, the story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. <laughs> You know, Mr. Dillon, a man can get a whole lot out of books if he just puts his mind to it. Yeah, I guess he can at that, Chester. Did you know they got books on everything? Man takes the time to read them. There's books on politics, history, geography, hog raising. <laughs> Which one are you working on now? Well, this here book ain't exactly one of them top ones, but it's still mighty valuable, Mr. Dillon. Oh, what's it called? Advanced Theories in the Art of Draw Poker. Well, you know, there you could stand some improving, Chester, if that game last night was any sample. <laughs> I'll get it back. That's why Doc loaned me this book of his. Doc loaned you? <laughs> Chester, Doc lost more in that game than you did. Well, yes, but the cards just wasn't with him. But he's got the theories down cold. Why, this book tells you every play there is, Mr. Dillon. The... Oh, hello, Tessie. Uh, well, come in. Come back, Marshal. Oh? Who's come back? 
Stead. Stead Rudger. I just saw him ride in. I'm afraid, Marshal. Uh, he's been away a long time, Tassie. I know, but he won't have changed any. You know the kind he is. Uh, six years, a man can calm down an awful lot. Not Stead. A lot of things have changed since he left. Yeah, I guess that's true enough. When he finds out about me and Tom, there's going to be trouble. Marshal, can't you arrest him? Arrest him? On what charge? He hasn't done anything. But he will, Marshal. Believe me, he will. You've you got to keep him and Tom apart. Where's Tom now? Over at the Long Branch. Marshal, what are you going to do? Look, Tassie, I don't go looking for trouble. Now, Stead can't expect to find everything the same way as he left. But he will, Marshal. I know. Uh, hello, Stead. Evening, Marshal. Well, <laughs> Tassie. Well, hello, Tassie. How are you, Stead? Talk about luck. Come here to ask the marshal where to find you, and right here you are. And prettier than no, ever. No, Stead. No. Now, what kind of talk is that for a man to hear from his intended? Marshal, hmm? please. Stead, wait a minute. You've been away quite a while, haven't you? Long enough. Too long, maybe, Stead. Tassie's married now. Married? That's right. It's been almost three years, hasn't it, Tassie? Who'd you marry? Tom. My brother, Tom? That's right, Stead. That sneaking, rotten snake. You've got room to call names riding out of town free. Is there never a word that from no you? no good double-crossing brother of mine? Sure, he's so no good he's worked himself half to death trying to save the ranch after your pa died. Well, Pa's dead, huh? Two years ago. So Tom got the ranch along with my girl. Well, Tom made a clean sweep for herself. Tassie, you better run along now. You leave this to me, will you? All right, Marshal. Goodbye, Stead. Tassie, far as I'm concerned, you're still my girl. I said goodbye, Stead. She's still my girl. Stead, I'm going to give you some advice. You forget about her. You just ride on. I may just do that, Marshal. But not till after I talk to Brother Tom. All right, let's get it over with. You'll find him at the Long Branch. Thanks. And you'll find me right beside you while you talk. No call for that. I just aim to tell him something. Oh, huh? tell him what? Tell him I'm going to kill him. Some things don't change, Marshal. Yeah, such as? This here old Long Branch. Just a little noisier is all. Uh-huh. Well, your brother's down there at the end of the bar. So I noticed. Well, now, Stead Rudger. Hello, Miss Kitty. You still look the same. You haven't changed much yourself, Stead. Come on, Marshal, let's go. See you later, Miss Kitty. Yeah, sure. 
Look, Stead, I hope you got it straight. You go for your gun and you know what'll happen. Just a little family reunion, Marshal. Don't you worry about a thing. Good evening, Marshal. Well, haven't seen you for quite a spell, Stead. Heard you was in town. Tell me, how are you, Tom? Stead, it's good to see you. What you holding your hand out for? Waiting to rot? Why, I just thought we'd shake for old time's sake. It's for old time's sake I'm gonna kill you. Now, wait, Stead, if that's a joke or something. You kind... ran into Tassie in my office, Tom. I don't think it is a joke. But, well, Stead, you got things all wrong. I, I can explain about things if you just let Same me. Same way you explained to Tassie, maybe? Look, I didn't mean to do it, Stead. It, it just happened. You was gone so long. Well, I just fell in love with her, that's all. You're claiming that makes it all right? I thought you'd forget her, Stead, before you'd been gone a month. That's how it was with her. In six months, she was all over. I'll just bet she was with you helping her. I'm telling you, she'd forgot about All you. right, fine. Then she forgets easy, Tom. So in six months, she'll forget about you. Marshal, are you going to stand for this? I can't run him in for talking, Tom. We're going to settle this ourselves, Tom. Just you and me. You're a gunman, Stead, for six years now. I heard about you. I ain't got a chance against you. <laughs> You should have thought of that before. Wait a minute. Tom, are you in any position to pay him off in cash for his share of the ranch? Well, reckon I could borrow it from the bank, but he ain't got no share, Marshal. Pa left the whole thing to me. The whole thing to you. But tomorrow night you won't be worrying about the ranch or about Tassie. What do you mean? Just listen to me, Tom. Early tomorrow morning, I'll be sitting on the front porch of the Dodge House, just waiting for you. And unless you want it to happen right in front of Tassie, you better ride in. If you ain't showed there by sundown, I'll ride out after you. Stand Good night, I... Marshal. What am I going to do? Looks like it's already been done, Tom. The day you married Tassie. She's the one that counts. She's the only one. Stead doesn't see it that way. He thinks I wronged him, but he won't listen. He never would. But I ain't gonna let it hurt her, no matter what it takes. Tell you what, Doc, I'll stay and I'll raise you 50 cents. <laughs> well, 50, oh, you will. Yes, well, I'll just go right along with you on that raise, Matt. <laughs> yeah, well, I was hoping you would, Doc. Sure you were. How many cards you want? Uh, let me see now. <laughs> Give me three. Th three? Oh, raised me 50 cents on nothing but a pair. <laughs> oh, my. And I'm taking one. You ought to read that book I loaned to Chester. No. <laughs> Might keep you from pulling such darn fool moves as that. Well, I'll try to get around to it before the winter's over, Doc. Mm -hmm. 
Ah. All right, Doc. Uh, here's another dollar at you. A dollar? Oh, Matt, are you crazy? One way of finding out, Doc. <laughs> Drew three cards, then go right in for a dollar. <laughs> yes, you're aiming to bluff. But you're talking to the fellow who invented bluffing. Is that so? Well, Doc, if you'll just see All right, me, all right. I'm staying right with you. <laughs> and I'm upping you 50 cents. Oh, yes, if a man wants to throw his money around like a rum-drunk Comanche, I'm always glad to oblige. <laughs> oh, come on in, Chester. How's Stead making on? Well, he's still sitting there on the porch of the Dodge house, but he's getting kindly fidgety, Mr. Dillon. He is, huh? <clears throat> I reckon he ain't gonna wait much longer. It can't be more than a half hour till sundown. Yeah. Well, I guess we better ride out ourselves, Chester. No, 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 you don't, Matt. No, no, not just when I got you over a barrel. Doc, I got some business to it. It'll keep until we finish this hand. It's your bet, Matt. <laughs> oh, you watch this, Chester. It's right out of the book. All right, you raise 50 cents, Doc, and I'll call you. Oh, oh, darn you. I was hoping you'd raise it some more. You're greedy, Doc. Okay, lay him down. It is a pleasure. <laughs> yes, I drew to a flush, and I made it. All blue. Oh, my, that pot looks like it's worth about five dollars. Uh, Doc, <laughs> uh, wait just a minute. You know that pair I held? Well, they were aces, and I drew three cards. A pair of deuces, and another ace. Well, I declare. A fool, Howells? Oh, but the book says the odds against you... I never home. read the book, Doc. Let's see, that comes to five dollars and a quarter. Thank you, Doc. Guess we better head out, Chester. Uh, uh, all right, Mr. Yeah, but, but, Matt, it's against all theory. Yeah, right? you're probably right, Doc. It was a hunch, that's all. Uh, Doc? Doc, I ain't got much time for reading anymore. I'll get that book back to you first thing in the morning. Uh, keep it, Chester. Keep it! <laughs> Show up pretty soon. I ain't gonna be nothing but a doggone human icicle. He'll show up, Chester. Maybe he won't. He's just too doggone cold for him to even think about killing. It's not cold when you're carrying the hate in you that Stead is, Chester. It's a downright shame. Things being all twisted up this way. It just ain't justice, that's all. No, but it's a fact. Uh, it's a shame. It just... Quiet, Chester. Hmm? It must be him, all right. Yeah. He sure don't care who hears him. Holly told Tom what he was going to do. Tom? Hold it, Stead. What? It's Marshal Dillon. You're covered. You walk up here slow. Oh, tis the marshal, and still riding herd. Yeah. Tom's not here. The light in the house. Tassie's there. Well, she don't need no protection. Maybe she does, in a way. I'll ask you something, Ted. How do you feel about Tassie? You know how I feel. Maybe. But do you love her enough to put her ahead of yourself? It ain't a matter of that, the way I look at it. I'm afraid it is, Stead. 
Marshal, you know you're taking quite a bit onto yourself, ain't you? I'm just trying to stop a killing, Stead. I know you could get him to draw on you and claim self-defense, and you'd probably go free. But it won't get you what you want, Stead. It will get me what I want. And she'll forget him in six months. She'll never forget him. And neither will you. Oh, Tassie! Here, wait a minute. What you doing? I could have told you this, but I figured it was better to get you out here and show you. Is that you, Marshal? Uh, yeah. Uh, could you come out a minute, Tassie? Stead's here. All right. Look, Stead, if you love her, you think it over before you go on trying to kill your brother. Hello, Marshal. Tassie? Uh, Stead may be riding on tonight, and I figured that, uh, he ought to have a look at his nephew first. What? Uh, can you hold a match here, Chester? Uh, yes, sir. A look at... We're not careful. Shh. Don't wake him up. Nephew? Tess, you, you mean you and Tom... He's six months old now. I suppose you'd hurt. Here, let me... Look. Well, what's his name? Stedman Rutger. Stedman? It's Tom's idea. He wanted to name him for you. It's awful cold for him out here. Oh, yeah. Well, get him back in the house, Tassie. Oh, listen, it's... Uh, uh, like Marshall said, I'm riding on tonight. I, I just wanted to see him and, and say goodbye and and good luck, Tassie. If, if ever you need for anything, why, you can reach me somehow. Thank you, Stead. Good luck to you. Night, Marshal. Uh, Tassie, by the way, Tom will be out later. He, uh, accidentally got locked up in jail today. In jail? Well, he'll explain when he gets here. Good night, Tassie. Night, Marshal. All right, you win, Marshal. It's like poker, Stead. You size up your man, then you play your hunches. I kind of had a hunch that you really did care for her. Yeah. Well, I ain't getting no younger around here. Oh. See you again sometime. Yeah, Stead. Listen, Marshal... You keep an eye on her, will you? Her and the kid both. Sure I will, Stead. Good luck. Thank you, Marshal. William Conrad. On the frontier, everybody wore some sort of a gun, unless they were a preacher, a woman, or a coward. Yet next week, a man who never wore a gun succeeds in killing off his enemies. And that was the West. Gunsmoke. 
Produced and directed by Norman McDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. The script was specially written for Gunsmoke by Les Crutchfield, with editorial supervision by John Meston. The music was composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Ray Kemper and Tom Hanley. Featured in the cast were Lillian Bayef, Lawrence Dobkin, and Vic Perrin. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Join us again next week for another story of the Western Frontier, when Matt Dillon, Chester Proudfoot, Doc, and Kitty, together with all the other hard-living citizens of Dodge, will be with you once more. It's America growing west in the 1870s. It's gun smoke. That episode of Gunsmoke was entitled Brother Welp, and it first aired on CBS back on the 18th of November in 1956. As always, we'll have another episode of Gunsmoke next time we get together. Folks, that's going to do it for this time around. I sure am glad you tuned in. All right, everybody, this is Bob Bro. I'm so glad you stopped by, and I'm so glad you met me. Catfish Jones was a river Looking back, I still remember